So if you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians 3, for those visiting, we're doing a series where last, at the end of last year, from September to December, we just talked about prayer. We spent a lot of time talking about prayer specifically. And then this season, right now, we began in January, we're going to all the way through May, we're going to be talking about praying with Paul. So we're going to be looking at all of Paul's prayers as we consider what it means for us to pray. Where Paul is the disciple maker, and we're the disciples. He's shaping us. He's the mentor, we're the mentees. So coming to learn from Paul how to pray, and that's what we're doing. And so we're going to be I'm going to be reading Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21, and then I'll be spending all, basically all my time there. So, out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me by standing. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, every time I read that, I have to laugh. Listen to that statement again. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for Paul leading us, guiding us, teaching us, training us in how to pray. We pray, we ask you that you would give us our hearts, as we heard in Sunday school class this morning, a hearts that are submissive to you, ready to listen and ready to be trained and taught through your holy word. And so we pray for that this very day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide. There are four points. And they all begin with S. Yes, I worked very hard on that. So what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to do a flyby, uh, um, kind of a 10,000 foot uh, altitude flyby, so we can kind of keep a big picture in mind as we get ready to dive into this passage, because you've got to keep, these, you've got to keep coming back around to these different things because it helps to shape what we're going to do. So our first flyby really tells us Notice that the whole God, the whole God is invoked and involved. Notice how the Father is mentioned in verse 14, verse 19, and verse 20. So I bow the knee to the Father, from whom everything, every family in heaven and earth is named. And then when you get down to verse, um, verse 19, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And then again in verse 20, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. So notice how the Father is invoked in this, pa- in this prayer, but also notice how the Son is brought in in verse 17, uh, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. In verse 19, uh, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then again in verse 21, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And then notice the Spirit, verse 16. 
strengthened with power through His Spirit. Now why am I keep bringing this up? Because the whole concept of the Trinity is not a concoction from 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea. It's all over the New Testament, and Ephesians is huge. Every time you turn around, almost every paragraph draws in all three persons. So not only is Paul convinced of what we have come to describe as the Trinity, he is also committed, notice, he is committed to asking for things that are related to each person of the Trinity when he prays for this church, these churches. He is committed to asking for the things that relate to each person of the Trinity when he prays for these churches. Now, we need to keep that in mind. It's easy when we're praying, and this happens. I do it, you do it, we do it. Or sometimes we're praying to the Father, and the next thing we know, we're saying, oh, Father, thank you that you were crucified for us. No, the Father was not crucified. Right? The Son was crucified for us. Was the Father involved? Yes. So we, just paying attention as we're praying, we're praying to the Father, being praying what is appropriate to the Father as the, per, the person of the Father, but then also of the Son when we talk about the Son or pray to the Son or the Spirit, etc. So Paul is committed to that, and I just want you to see that here. And so, dear friends, as we kneel down with Paul and learn to pray from Paul, that is a significant lesson. Incorporating the whole God in our prayers for others and asking for what's appropriate to each person of the Trinity. Further, Paul is unashamed, unashamed about his body being part of his begging and his posture being part of his praying. Notice how he begins, verse 14. And this is not hyperbole, because when you read the book of Acts, you find Paul actually, literally doing what he's saying here. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, I remember, this is long ago, the person is dead, and so this has nothing really to do with them. But I remember a fellow one time came to a church where I was at, and he came to complain about all that Catholic stuff going on in the church, like kneeling in prayer. Seriously. No, no, that's not Catholic. That's maybe the one of the things that the Catholics get right, even. They put their bodies into their begging and their posture into praying, which is exactly what the Bible coaches us to do. And Paul does it, and here it is. I bow my knee to the Father. For us to resist throwing our bodies into praying is outright, well, is a subtle form of Gnosticism. Okay? And so, yes, our bodies should be involved. You've heard me use the illustration before, you know that if Neil, when he was proposing to Kim, if he had said, oh, Kim, uh, how would you like to marry me? Is that all right? You know, his bodily posture says something totally different than his words. What would, you, what would Kim want Neil to do, right? What would, should Kim have, Neil have done? Kim, would you please marry me, right? His body broadcasts and goes along with his words. It's the same thing when we're in prayer. When we're in prayer, our body is the nonverbal part of our praying. We're throwing our bodies into our begging, our postures into our praying. It's very biblical, it's very fitting, and it's very human. And God made us as humans. Oh. So there's what Paul does. He puts his body, he's unashamed to put his body into his begging. And so learning to pray with Paul means that we will need, on occasion, we will need to kneel down with him. Next off, notice that all fatherhood, Paul is bringing out here, all fatherhood, which would include even the twisted and mangled versions of fatherhood, somehow reflect the father's character. 
So he says, I bow the knee to the Father from whom every family, keep an eye on that word, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That's the translation in the English Standard Version. The Greek word behind family is patria. Patria, it literally means something like fatherhood or it means something like fathered family. From whom every fathered family is named. Okay? Why am I bringing that up? Well, it shows that in some aspect, fatherhood does reflect, even the mangled versions in some way reflects God's fatherhood. But also it's already preparing us for the family aspect of this prayer, from whom every fathered family is named. Well, let's go on then. Notice, notice lastly, when Paul begins this section, he says, for this reason. For this reason. So he's pulling in everything that has happened already. He's already stated in chapters 1 through 3. You have to try to keep this in mind when you read Ephesians that Ephesians breaks into two parts, the first three chapters and the last three chapters. And I think that you will find that chapter 1, verse 15 gives you the outline when he says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, that's almost an outline for the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3, because of the grace of God, the rich, abundant grace of God, this is our faith in Jesus Christ, chapters 1 through 3. And then chapters 4 through 6 is almost completely about the love we have towards the saints. And so I think that works good. And so this prayer is at the transitional moment in this letter when Paul is moving from our faith in Jesus Christ to the love that we have for all the saints, and it will show up in this prayer very richly. And so we should not, it should come as no surprise then that this prayer is drawing in chapters 1 through 3, but it is moving towards chapter 4 through 6. And it is all about, to take the phrase out of the middle of the prayer here, it is all about being rooted and grounded in love. Prayer is all about being rooted and grounded in love. Okay? So here's the beginning point. The first point is this. Strength by the Spirit. This is the very first thing he prays for. Strength by the Spirit. He actually says that you be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. First off, it's a prayer for power. And we read from Exodus chapter 9, and you remember that God says to Pharaoh, the reason why I'm keeping you standing is I'm going to display my power as I, as I bring these plagues upon you. So you have a sense of what that power looks like, and that's what Paul is praying for that you will be strengthened with exodus power. You'll be strengthened with the power that God exhibited there in the, tw- in the ten plagues. I almost said twelve plagues, sorry. That made me heretical. Anyways, it's a joke. But the power that was exhibited in those ten plagues, that you'd be strengthened by God's power through the Spirit. Okay. In fact, this request, that you'd be strengthened with power through the Spirit, this request takes us back to the earlier prayer in Ephesians. Those of you who were here three weeks ago, may vaguely remember chapter 1, but that's, that's our call to worship. The prayer in chapter 1, that's our call to worship, where Paul prays for power for these people. Here, remember, this is what he says, that you'd have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the immeasurable, the immeasurable, the unmeasurable, the unfathomable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. If you remember the rest of that prayer, the working of His great might is displayed 
in Christ who was crucified in his resurrection and ascension. So that you know what power Paul was praying for. But notice that, the immeasurable greatness of his power. Remember, remember, you remember I had a tape measure up here, didn't I? Remember that? I put a tape measure up here. I said, this is measurable. I can tell you the distance from here to here. When Paul is saying the immeasurable, that means there's no ruler, there's no tape measure anywhere that can fathom the greatness, the extensiveness of God's power. And Paul is praying for them to know the immeasurable power, the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward you who believe. And here's Paul back at it again, praying that, that they would receive the power of God through the Spirit. So it's immeasurably great, and it's power is what he prays for. But notice it's not power against us. It's not power to oppose us, his people. Rather, he says in chapter 1, it's power toward us. Toward us who believe. Power on our behalf. Power on our benefit. In our benefit. And so he's praying for it again here. Again, as I quoted John Calvin last time, let me quote him again. Paul wants the Ephesians to contemplate the power of God so that they will not be discouraged by their own weaknesses. Paul wants them to contemplate the power of God so they're not discouraged by their own weaknesses. And so here he is again, coming back to saying, I pray for you that the power of God through the Spirit would fill you then notice that this power is tied to the Spirit. Because again, as I said three weeks ago, that the way to know the Father better is by the donation and by the involvement of the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. So the Spirit plays a very significant role inside of God's sacred family amongst us. Let me give you three samples just from Ephesians, okay? So flip over very quickly, hold this passage, But look over at chapter 1, verse 13. Notice how Paul puts this in chapter 1, verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Notice how the Holy Spirit is the seal that says that says in some way, these are mine, these are God's children, these are the ones who are united to Christ. He's extremely important in that regard. The seal that we belong. And then Paul, if you go back and look at chapter 2, verse 18, when Paul was talking about Jewish believers and Gentile believers, he says in chapter 2, verse 18, after he talks about Christ being our priest, he says in chapter 2, verse 18, For through Him, through Christ, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. How do we get access to the Father united to Jesus? It's the Spirit who makes us, who brings us to the Father. Jesus opens the way, the Spirit brings us on the way. Let me say it again. Jesus opens the way and the Spirit brings us on the way. Do you hear how important the Spirit is? He is extremely important. And that's why Paul is praying for them to have this power through the Spirit. Then if you look again in chapter 2, at the last verse, verse 22. In Him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's how we have God. We have God by the Spirit. And, And notice it's the picture of us as a church. 
knit together, or excuse me, I used that phrase this morning, built together, right, as a temple, as a dwelling place of God together, not just individually, but together. The Spirit is extremely important. And so that you would have this power by the power of God through the Spirit. My friends, as you think about this first prayer, strength through the Spirit, who do you know? Who do you know that needs the power of God as they wrestle again to resist sin or maybe as they wrestle and fight to overcome depression? Do you know someone who needs us praying? Oh Lord, may they be strengthened with power through the Spirit. Does anybody know anybody? Yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There are people, and even in our presence, and even we would love people to pray for us that way. What a great prayer. What church do you know needs the power of God through the Spirit? You see how, how, how important? Yeah. Yeah, somebody pointed at our church. That's right. There you go. That's great. We do. And so this prayer is extremely important. No wonder Paul used it. Every church needs the power of God through the Spirit. Okay? So, but also we must have the sojourn of the Son. And that's verse 17. The sojourn of the Son. The dwelling, the staying of the Son. The, the, the abiding of the Son. So as you look at verse 17 there in chapter 3. Notice that Paul goes on to say, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Notice that the vehicle here of Christ dwelling in our hearts, the vehicle is through faith. It's by our resting, receiving and resting upon Him alone as He is freely offered to us in the gospel. You heard all about that this morning. But it says through faith, but notice that the aim is that Christ may dwell in your hearts that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that Christ may dwell, think about that word, that Christ may live in our hearts, that Christ may sojourn in our hearts. Does anybody here live, dwell in a house by any chance? Do you sojourn in a house? Yeah, I mean, we live there. We know the nooks and crannies of it, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that He would be here abiding we would know it, that we would, we would grow in that. So the sojourn of the Son is this prayer, but the sojourn of the Son is related to the Spirit, that you receive power by the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You may receive the power of the Spirit in the inner being, in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Notice that the Son, the sojourn of the Son, is related to the Spirit who makes it happen. The Son and the Spirit are on the same team. They're not at odds with each other. The Son and the Spirit are on the same team. They're not at odds with each other. Sometimes amongst Christian circles, it's almost hinted that I need the Holy Spirit. I have already had Jesus, but now that's not enough. I don't need, that's not enough to have Jesus. I need to go one step further and really have all these experiences with the Spirit. But the reality is that the Spirit and the Son are on the same team and they work together. You have the Son, it's because of the Spirit. You have the Spirit, it's in the Son. Does that make sense? The two go together. You can't separate them and even pit them against each other. You just can't do that. The Son and the Spirit are on the same team. And so John Calvin noticed, quote, there is no way of receiving the Spirit without Christ 
just as there is no way of receiving Christ without the Spirit. So my friends, who can you pray for so that they will come to be satisfied with the sojourn of Christ? Who do you know that needs to come to be satisfied with the dwelling of Christ and praying for them for that in that regard? Maybe what church can you think of or what missionaries can you think of who need to be growing in the satisfaction of the sojourn of Christ? Especially as you think about missionaries, it's a very lonely business often out in foreign fields and other places. And sometimes they will tell you that they felt abandoned. They felt abandoned by the churches, which made them feel abandoned sometimes by God. Who doesn't need someone praying for them that they would be satisfied with the sojourning of Christ. And yet things get a bit beefier. I want you to think this through with me. If Christ is in our hearts, that means then that Christ dwelling in you weaves and interlaces you to others whom Christ is dwelling in. Did you hear that? That if Christ is dwelling in your heart, that's going to weave and interlace you with others in whose heart Christ dwells. That's extremely important, and that actually fits with where Paul is taking this prayer and the rest of this letter. In other words, Christ can't be shattered. Christ can't be splintered. Christ can't be fractured. Christ can't be fragmented. That's going to mean then that if we're praying for Christ to dwell in people, in one another, then we're going to be praying for, here's your third point, the span of love. And that's verse 18 and 19. We'll be praying for the span of love. And here's how he puts it. He goes on to say, in the rest of verse 17, all into verse 19, that you being rooted, after he's prayed for, for Christ to dwell in your hearts, your hearts plural, your hearts plural, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, plural, you together, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with whom? All the saints. Are you picking up already what's coming out? With all the saints. You may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice the span of love. And so this love is, is love upward. It's love for Christ, but it is also, and it's already here, it's love outward. It's love for one another. It's not one or the other. It's both and. Here's what I mean. We want to be rooted and grounded in love for Christ, knowing the love of Christ for us, well, that's going to include then being rooted and grounded for love for one another for whom Christ died and in whom Christ dwells. Does that make sense? We want to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, His love for us and our love for Him, but that's going to include being rooted and grounded in our love for one another for whom Christ died and in whom Christ dwells. Does that make sense? Okay. I know it's late at night and everything, just stay with me, but this is huge. This is a significant point. Remember what we've been saying all along as we've looked through the New Testament letters and the, the, the importance of Christian love, love for one another, how it is a top drawer issue. 
And here you have it already. It's already here again, and it's part of Paul's prayer. So let me move on with this then. In fact, what Paul intimates is that for us to fathom, for us to fathom the span of this love requires all the saints. That's what he says. It requires all the saints. Because to know the love of Christ is love for us and our love for Him. To know the love of Christ is beyond our limited creaturely capacity. Notice it says, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It is impossible for us to fully know and free and yeah, fully know the love of Christ because we're limited. Right? We're limited. And his love is part of his divinity as well. I mean, he's, it's unlimited, it's unknowable in that sense that it surpasses our knowledge. And so it requires this that all the saints to be part of it. It's in comprehending the love of Christ, which is incomprehensible that we then become open to being filled with all the fullness of, of God. That's what he goes on to end verse 19. It's as we grow in this incomprehensible love of Christ, knowing the love of Christ with all the saints, knowing the love of Christ with all the saints, that we become open to, being, to be filled with all the fullness of God. Maybe another way to put it. As instead of it being me and Jesus, the Bible is all about we and Jesus. Instead of it being me and Jesus, the Bible is very clearly about, and even this prayer is about, we and Jesus. That's extremely important. So, when we and Jesus, when we and Jesus are in fellowship, and that fellowship goes this way and it goes this way, when we and Jesus are in fellowship, the Father's pleasure becomes livelier and enlivening. So my friends, who can you think of that has struck out on their own? They've meandered off living as if it's only me and Jesus that you could be praying for. Lord, they need to know what is the incomprehensible love of Christ with all the saints that passes expands beyond their ability to comprehend. They need to be plugged in. I put it in my prayer this morning, as a matter of fact, I was quoting John Calvin, that, uh, that, they, that people that we were praying for that aren't believers, they'd come to faith in Christ, they'd come to believe and trust the word of Christ, the unchangeable truth of his word, and they'd be brought into the fellowship of his church outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. That is a John Calvin statement. It comes up in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Think about that. That is a we and Jesus statement. Who do you know needs to remember it's we and Jesus, not me and Jesus? Right? And we live in a time. Think about COVID. COVID brought it all out very nicely for us. Thank you. That we're a highly individualistic society, and so it's been really hard getting people to get out of their slippers on Sunday morning and their bathrobes to get them back into church. It's been difficult. Lots of churches have struggled with it because we live in a me and Jesus kind of culture. Actually, it's me and whatever. But for the Christians, it's a me and Jesus culture. And we, who do you know that you need to pray for? That they'd be recaptured by the we and Jesus. Okay, I've said enough. I'm beating a dead horse there, sorry. What denomination of Christ's church doesn't need us praying with Paul for them? That, that there would be this comprehending the incomprehensible love of Christ with all the saints. 
And so then, the span of love. And when we pray with Paul, notice verse 20 and 21, we have strong assurance. Strong assurance. And here's how he puts it. And it's almost a doxology as he comes to the end, but it's a very fitting part of the prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in what? In where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice the strong assurance. The strong assurance is simple and it is social. It is simple and it is social. Here's the simple part. It's there in verse 20. Now to him who is able, there's very simple, he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask for him. What a good reminder. He is able to do, doesn't mean he always does, but he is able to do far more than we ask or think. And he's also referring to this prayer that God is able to take this prayer and do far more than even Paul asked is thinking of. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. But notice again in verse 20, this simple assurance brings us back to the immeasurable power of God that we have just prayed for in verse 16, that you may be filled with power through the Holy Spirit. And then here he says it, according to the power at work within us. According to, that's a strong statement. According to the power. The power in us that God is working, God often uses to answer prayers like this one. Notice, notice verse 20. He's talking about God answering prayers. He's able to do far more than we either ask or think according to the power at work in us. Do you hear it? He's talking about how God answers prayer. And he goes straight to us and he says, and to God's power working in us, Oftentimes, God answers many of our prayers through working through us. Now think about that. Isn't that, I mean, that's humbling. But it also reminds us that we're to be serious about what we're praying for. Are we ready for God to actually use us as part of answering these very prayers? I mean, if we're praying about the love of Christ being, you know, the span of love showing up in our church, that we would love Jesus more, know His love for us more, and be rich, rooted and grounded in love for one another, then all of a sudden we're saying, oh, and that means, Lord, help me to be an answer to this prayer. You who empower me, help me to go forward being part of the answer to this prayer. That's pretty significant if you ask me. So then the, that's simple, but then the strong assurance is also social. Notice verse 21 as he goes on to say, to him be the glory. And in a me and Jesus world, this next word would not be there. In the church and in Christ Jesus. In a me and Jesus world, if Paul was a me and Jesus kind of guy, that next word would not be there in the church. But he's a we and Jesus guy because Jesus was a we and Jesus guy. Okay? if you want to put it that way. And so may He be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. And so then, um, can you see how this prayer has, is already lifting us up like a magic carpet and is already carrying us forward into chapters 4 through 6, which is going to be hugely about love for the saints. Can you see it? already moving us in that direction. We're already, if we're praying with Paul, we're already praying for it 
and then comes the rest of Ephesians chapter, in chapters 4 through 6. So my friends, as you think about praying with Paul, a few things here. I said it this morning, I said it, I've said it, and we'll say it, and we'll say it, and we'll say it forever. Our Lord's new commandment is a top drawer issue. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. That you love one another, by this all the world will know that you are my disciples. Jesus' new commandment is a top drawer issue. It shows up in every New Testament letter from Romans to Revelation. It is just as important as our doctrine of Christ, our Christology. It is just as important as our teachings about soteriology, penal substitutionary atonement, justification. It is just as important as those. And the reason why I can say that because Jesus said, this is the new commandment. This is how the world will know that you're my disciples. You do this. There's no debate. You command it, Lord. It's definitely a top drawer issue. And so therefore, for us to make it a lesser issue, to shove it down to the third and fourth level, means that we are putting ourselves at odds with the apostle. And worse, we're putting ourselves at odds with Jesus. Taking that and putting love lower down on the priority list is putting ourselves at odds with the apostle and more dangerously putting ourselves at odds with our Lord Jesus. And so oftentimes, and this gets brought up even in our own denomination, oftentimes to make the peace and the purity of the church a contest. Right? That's part of our membership vows. We say we're going to study the purity and the peace of the church. But sometimes you hear people, the way they talk, it's almost as if it's a contest between peace and purity. To make the peace and purity of the church a contest, a zero-sum game, is to fail. What do I mean by zero-sum game? Well, if I, if, I have, if I promote peace in the church, that means there's going to be less purity, both moral purity and doctrinal purity. Or you go the other way, well, if I promote the purity in the church, then it's going to mean there's going to be less peace. That's a zero-sum game. Right? It's not an either-or. It's a both-and. Now, I realize there are some people who have abused it. There are some people that it's peace at all costs. Shame on them, they're wrong. But there are others, and some of them are PCA people, and they're Presbyterians, and it's purity at all costs. And they will rip congregations apart and a denomination apart. It can't be an either-or because Jesus' commandment is a top-drawer issue. Purity and peace of the church go together. In fact, you can't have one with, really without the other. You can't have the one really without the other. You want to talk doctrinal purity, but you don't love your brothers? You don't have a clue what doctrinal purity is. You want to proclaim justification, but you don't understand what love of brothers means, then you don't understand justification. It's just that simple. You can't have the purity and the peace of the church. You've got to, you've got to have both. You can't have one or the other. It's a very biblical concept. The two go together. And so it's peace and purity, purity and peace. Neither of those is more important than the other. But also, going further as you look at this and thinking about application, coming back and thinking about the power of God. Power of God. The immeasurable, the immeasurable power of God that is toward us. It's really important. 
And my friends, I'm not saying that it's the worst time in world history because I don't believe that. I don't even think it's the worst time in all of Western history. But I will tell you this. We are at a significant moment in Western history where the inmates have taken over the institution. We're at a significant moment in, world, in Western history where the power of God needs to be displayed beautifully. Where the power of God needs to be working in us together masterfully. We're at a crucial moment in Western history that we should be praying, chapter 3, thir- verse 14 through 21, all the time for one another where the power of God works together in us masterfully. We need God's help. We need need the help of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to powerfully be at work in us so that we can be both a, a body of believers who are growing and grounded and rooted in the love of Christ together, but also that we can... We can grow in the bountiful love for Jesus and for Jesus uh, and for His people in a way that is an answer to our very prayers. We need the power of God at work in us that we may become the answer to our very prayers for these things. Now notice it's not a self-sufficient, self-serving way of answering, but it's a spirit-sufficient, Christ-serving way of being an answer to these prayers together. And so, dear friends, let us kneel down with Paul. Let us learn to pray. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we bow before You. You from whom every family, every fathered family in heaven and on earth is named. And according to the riches of Your glory, we pray that You would grant us. You would grant us. You would grant those who are on our hearts. You would grant us to be strengthened with power like You exhibited that power in the Exodus when You set Your people free. That you, we would be strengthened in power through Your Holy Spirit in the inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts together through faith. So that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So that you would fill us with all of your fullness. We ask this, Lord, because we know that you are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power you work within us. And so do you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to ask you to turn in our hymn books to hymn number 616, thinking about the power of God, leaning on the everlasting arms. Let's stand and sing 616.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.